Hey everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am Stephen Cox. This week, in honor of the holiday, we revisit two of this year's most popular segments. Jennifer Young is a therapist who specializes in trauma, and she is also a leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay. And she joined us twice this year to field your questions about how to stay sane and active during a very challenging time. And for those of us who could use a refresher, and I'm raising my hand here, we are proud to present them again. For most of us in the progressive community, the last two and a half years have taken a toll. In addition to the physical and emotional rigors of the activist work we do, the almost daily onslaught of outrages coming from the GOP and the Trump administration have been, in a word, traumatizing. To talk about how to address this, we've invited on Jennifer Young. She is a counselor who specializes in treating trauma and PTSD, and she is also a leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay. So Jennifer Young, it is great to have you here. Uh, both as a counselor and as a, a fellow leader. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Stefan, so much. I'm so glad to be here tonight and hopefully share what I know and just glad to be a part of doing this as an activist and um, contributing where I can. Well, look, I have to tell you, when I let people know that a trauma specialist was going to be on the show, my social media and inbox just kind of blew up. Uh, <laughs> so we have a ton of listener questions for you. Um, but I, I want to start by discussing a few things that you laid out at a talk that you gave at Indivisible's Gathering of National Leaders in D.C. Um, first, you introduced people to the idea of cognitive dissonance. So for people who are not familiar, what is cognitive dissonance and how does it pertain to the trauma of our current political situation? Yeah. So cognitive dissonance is holding two opposite thoughts that you can't make sense of that causes you emotional pain. And frankly, it's a pretty common experience for all of us to have some cognitive dissonance throughout the day on a very minor, minor scale. I I use the example of trying to decide where you want to go to dinner and uh, should I go to Chili's or Applebee's, Chili's or Applebee's, and you kind of go back and forth and it's kind of a pain in the butt to get there and then you finally make the decision and you have a little bit of relief. Um, But cognitive dissonance is also the source of psychological trauma when you have to hold a thought or two thoughts that you can't make sense of over a long period of time, it, it can create a trauma reaction in your brain in addition to the layers of cognitive dissonance that we may experience. Cognitive dissonance about um, what another person may represent to us. Cognitive dissonance about what we believe about ourselves. All of those layers can create a traumatic reaction. What, How it relates to what we're going through now is that we are literally being exposed to two opposite things every day whether it's our president is a liar or our neighbors are being taken away and and kept in detention centers or whether it's something closer to home, even closer to home that I can't, you know, my family doesn't believe the same things I believe. I've uncovered that our morals are so different. So the all of those layers um, have created trauma in almost everyone, certainly an activist as, as I know it. Well, you say that one of the things that people can do here is to remind themselves of facts. And you actually see to write out things yeah. I know for sure every day. Talk about yeah. how that can help. Yeah. So in order to settle cognitive dissonance, we kind of need to know what we need to know. Cognitive dissonance psychologically is like being up on a fence and you can't decide which side is correct and um, um, which side you need to be on. 
So in order to kind of settle yourself and keep yourself off the fence, waking up every day and kind of reminding yourself what you know for sure. This is what I believe. This is who I am. This is how I know. This is what I know is right for me to do each day can kind of keep us off the fence. In addition, um, a lot of cognitive dissonance, especially when it's coming from someone who is psychologically manipulative, is based in lies and and untruths. Mm. So staying in the facts um, is is kind of another way to stay off the fence. You've got to put those facts right there in front of you every day in order to um, to decrease that cognitive dissonance. You know, you've been in practice for over 10 years, and I'm wondering what are some of the ways that trauma manifests itself, some of the things that we should maybe be aware of possibly in ourselves? Yeah, so what I'm sure most activists and listeners probably notice is one of the ways we see it as we tend to want to avoid. We tend to want to stay away from things that are upsetting or disturbing to us. Um, we hear that a lot now when people say, I can't take another day of the news. I don't right. want to see one more thing. As activists, we um, we need to kind of step away from that at some point. But at the same time, um, it's important to kind of stay abreast of what's going on. So having that ab- avoidance feeling, having that emotional pain when you're exposed to this information is the way it kind of manifests itself We also see it show up in um, kind of how you feel when you're um, triggered by events, when we have a new news story or or something happened in the news that reminds us of something um, that kind of can trigger us and make us um, kind of set us off a little balance from ourselves. People also may have just some depression and some general anxiety feelings um, that they maybe even never experienced before. Or a reoccurrence of that. If someone has suffered depression or anxiety in the past and going through this can certainly bring that forward. And a lot of activists suffer from, you know, not wanting to participate at times. Like, I can't I can't go to another march. I can't go to another rally. I can't pick up the phone and make another phone call. Just kind of not wanting to do the things that you know you want to do. Um, and then the other thing is the complete sense of anger and horror that we feel. Um, intense anger and horror. So those kinds of feelings is kind of how it manifests itself. We have questions that relate to a lot of what you just said from listeners, but I will just ask you because you brought up the news and in particular social media and how that can be triggering. We as activists need to know, and actually I'll just speak from personal experience, I need to know what's going on in the news in order to do the work that I do here with the podcast. But I'm wondering how you recommend striking a balanced? How much, how much is too much? Yeah. So I think the best way to determine how much is too much is to know your body and know your body's reaction to what you're exposing yourself to. Um, with trauma survivors, when they have to expose themselves to something they know might be triggering, I ask them that before they, um, engage with that, whatever it is, whether in our case it's TV or whatever it is that they take a few minutes to center themselves, quiet your mind, take a couple breaths and be as present as you can and then spend some time doing the activity or the event and paying attention to how you respond and react to it. I also recommend small doses, so 15, 20, 30 minutes, um, and see how you're feeling. And if you need a break, take a break, stop, take a couple breaths and get present again and re-engage. So small doses and staying present along the way can really help. I know for myself, I, there was a time where the only thing I could expose myself to was one hour Rachel Maddow every day mm. for a month or you know what I mean? I just, I had yeah. to avoid everything else. I just, I just chose one show that I trusted 
watched it, got through it and moved on. And um, so making some decisions about how long you're exposed to something and how you're feeling as you enter into that exposure can be really, really helpful. Yes. Rachel Maddow is a very reassuring presence. Um, (laughs) She she is. And uh, I have noticed that I have had to really scale back my exposure to Twitter. Twitter is really uh, not the uh, it's it's not the best showing of humanity happening uh, on that feed there. Uh, So let's get into some listener questions. So the first is about somebody who doesn't feel entitled to their trauma. So we see trauma inflicted on people. Uh, We see children ripped from their families and put in cages. Uh, We see families being torn apart by ICE. Uh, We see people being targeted and killed by white supremacists. And and some people may feel that because the trauma isn't happening directly to them, and it's not on the same scale, that they're not entitled to their feelings of trauma. I I think there's also some grappling with white privilege here. How would you address that? Yeah. So first of all, it's a really great question and something really, really important to address. Um, everybody's feelings are valid, even even the, in, you know, feeling not entitled. But I, I think the first thing to kind of address there is that it's okay to, it, it probably comes from a very high sense of empathy. And I would venture to say a lot of activists have a high degree of empathy. You know, I so was going to ask you about that. Do you find that to be an inherent paradox? Because many of us get into activism because we care and we're empathetic. But, you know, being empathetic yeah. makes us particularly susceptible to the horrors that we see going on. Yes, all of what you said is exactly true. I have zero research on how high empathy is among activists, but I will say I personally see activists that are impacted more than others, and we do know that empathy is on a scale. So if, you know, there are people that suffer emotionally more than others because they have higher empathy. So kind of being aware, again, of your degree of empathy is is an important thing for you to manage. And, and as a result, it means you may have to pull back from your exposure or your activism if you're not able to manage yourself in that space. So circling back around to the kind of white privilege aspect of this, I do think it's important to acknowledge that those of us um, who are white are I don't want to say most, but a lot of us are newer to this fight. Yeah. You know, we put on those pink hats a couple of years ago and now we're in, we're in, we're all in when really uh, people of color, the black community, they've been suffering um, with these kinds of horrors, um, the Latina community for horrors for hundreds of years. And so we need to absolutely acknowledge um, that issue. And, you know, one of my little soapbox things is we need to fall behind in the sense of uh, allowing the black community, Latina community, the Asian community to kind of lead a little bit on some of this stuff. Um, and I think that's one of the ways we can check ourselves, manage ourselves and make sure we're making the right choices for the for humanity on the whole. You know, at the Indivisible Conference, they talked about inclusive democracy as the goal. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, our focus needs to be that, that we need to to move forward in that direction. So turning your sense of uh, the bad feeling you may have about being entitled to your trauma to a focus on humanity and what do we need to do to push um, humanity forward in a way we've never been able to do before, I think is really important. If we, if we don't pay attention to the children in cages and we don't get, you know, um, a sense of traumatic response to that kind of stuff, then we're not feeling the right, I don't want to say feeling the right feelings, but we're not doing the right thing anyway. So Mm. it's okay to feel bad and feel traumatized about those things. 
but we need to remember that we're a little later to the to the fight and um, we need to follow um, the you know leaders of color absolutely agreed and sort of related to that Alex Baxter Johnson asks if shared communal trauma is I guess, a mitigating factor. In other words, is it easier if we sort of share the burden of our trauma collectively? Absolutely. So I kind of put that in the category of validation, which is a huge component for um, recovery from psychological abuse. We need to be validated by others. Our process of settling our own mind comes from when we reflect our thoughts off to other people and they reflect back to us. So that process of validation comes from that community that we share. So it is absolutely crucial that we kind of go through this together collectively. I um, spoke with an um, a reporter the other day from Bustle was writing an article about the funeral that was held in Greenland for an iceberg and wanted to know what funerals do for, for climate change, you know, and yeah. uh, in, in that context. And our rituals are really important for us as communities to kind of have some understanding and some empathy um, for each other. So being a collective as we go through this horrible time is really important for our well-being. Yeah, it's there is a real power, I think, in in sharing the grief. Uh, I yeah, I certainly can relate to that. I mean, every time I go to you know a protest, um, you you sort of feel your feelings validated, and you yeah. feel sort of lifted up by the the experience. Um, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Uh, Mandy Bryant Mason asks, what do you advise around friendships and relationships that have strained during this time? And you talked about this when I saw you speak in D.C., and you said something that I have never heard a therapist say about this. So what's your advice here? <laughs> well, I kind of have a real strong feeling about this. It comes from my work in, in intimate partner violence and psychological abuse that I feel very strongly that it is absolutely important to end relationships or change your exposure to relationships when you are being harmed in a relationship. And unfortunately, what's been uncovered, or fortunately or unfortunately, however you feel about it, what's been uncovered is that people close to us um, don't have our same morals and values. And I think it's really important to, especially during this time, to stand with and next to people that share our morals and values. We have to stand together during this really, really terrible time. I, I think, you know, it's hard to make those decisions about who to interact with and who not to interact with. But we have to protect ourselves. That's if we don't take care of ourselves and protect ourselves, um, we're not going to make it through. The other little tweak to this, this is, is, is a little bit of a pet peeve my, for me as well, is the label of mother and father and sister and brother and best friend comes second to someone else's humanity. And society has really lifted up these labels of what mom and dad and sister and brother mean and forced us to use that to override someone's humanity or lack of humanity. And that has put all of us in very dangerous situations throughout our lives and certainly is perpetuated during this time of psychological manipulation. So I feel very strongly um, in, in people using what I call healthy avoidance um, to manage relationships. It is absolutely okay to unfriend people on Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, you know, unfollow, unfriend, block, do whatever you got to do. 
it is absolutely the right thing to do. I always say too, you know, we need all activists to be in their best and right mind. And if that means you have to change the nature of a relationship with a loved one, then that's what I would like for you to do because we need you to be in this fight. Absolutely. I, I love that. I love everything yeah. you just said. Um, so um, you were talking about resistors fatigue. Paula Harper Christensen uh, wanted to hear you address that. And I've also heard from people talking about it taking a physical toll, everything from exhaustion yeah. to weight loss to hair loss. Um, yep. What do you recommend for self-care? Yeah, so it, it is real. People are having real stress reactions to this time. And all of those things, even the physical stuff you mentioned, is all part of what someone experiences when they're going through a traumatic situation or certainly after. I recommend that people take Take the time they need. Step away, step aside, step down. Let your um, fellow invisible members or fellow resistors step up and hold space for you and um, and do the work while you take a step back. I lost my mother shortly after the inauguration unexpectedly. I, so you know, I had all these new... Yeah, all these new, thank you, all these new resistance friends and people that I barely knew and some I had only known on Facebook. And I had to step aside from a lot of the things that I wanted to do. And when I was ready to come back, they were right there waiting for me. So I think it's really, really important that people take the time they need to take care of themselves. Again, I say that as a therapist and as as an activist, that if we don't take care of ourselves, you won't be here for the fight. So um, step aside. Yeah. Well, and so you're touching on this already, but uh, somebody also wanted to know about how if depression or burnout has caused you to stop doing the activist work, how do you recommend getting back on the horse? Yeah. So once you, I think with depression, certainly sometimes you have to dip your toe in the pond and see how things feel before you really know if you're ready. And again, paying attention to your body and how your thinking is, you, you know, you dip your toe back in, you do something light and easy and, and step back and see how you feel. And then you go back in for more and step back and see how you feel kind of easing yourself back in, I think is a really, really good plan for that. We have a long road ahead of us. Um, November of 2020 is, um, is a long way away. It's going to go fast, mm -hmm. but it's a long way away. So if you have to take several of those months to get yourself ready and geared up, then do that. Some people may be more energized now and then have to take the month or two off before the election. You just have to do what you can do a little bit at a time. And pacing, you know, I, I, I've also talked to other activists about kind of balancing our lives you know, that this can't be your activism can't be the only thing you do, you know, making sure that your schedule weekly, monthly is balanced between any family or relationship issues that you need to take care of. Of course, our work lives and our other social lives and and this work as activists kind of making sure things are balanced and balance is hard for people separate from this time right. in in American life. But certainly um, kind of checking the balance of your life is probably going to be important. You know, I will just ask you one last question, and we're not going to get to all of them uh, in this segment, um, but because uh, there were a ton, like I say. But um, <laughs> I do want to ask you about uh, somebody mentioned humor. And yeah. Viktor Frankl, who wrote about surviving the Holocaust, talked about the importance to him of humor in dealing with his trauma. How do you see the role of humor? Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about humor from a neurological standpoint is when we are laughing, we are present. Um, laughter and humor can exist unless you are fully present in that moment. So from a 
neurological standpoint, laughing is crucial to our well-being during a traumatic situation and certainly after traumatic situations. So I'm a huge fan of it. Um, we have to make jokes about it. I think we have to be really, really sensitive to the impact of the humor that we choose to participate in and not just our intention. Um, so it's kind of important to be mindful of how um, your humor might be received by sure. another person. Um, but nonetheless, um, for our well-being, we must laugh. It's one of the things I love about the Indivisible organization and the kind of crazy, funny things that we're empowered to do in this movement, in this in this part of the movement, is just get out there and, and do the things that make us feel good and make us laugh and where we can have a good time together in and amongst all of this um, horror. I, I feel it's really important. When we are laughing, we are present. I'm going to put that on a bumper yeah. sticker. I love that. Yeah, That's absolutely. awesome. Yeah, so, yeah. so listen, Jennifer, as I said, we didn't get to everything. So I would love to have you back. Great. I'm happy to do it. Jennifer Young is a counselor specializing in trauma and PTSD, and she is also a leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you. And next, we welcome back our friend Jennifer Young. She is a counselor who specializes in treating trauma and PTSD. She is also a leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay, and she joins us again to discuss some of your thoughts and concerns about the many challenges that we face as citizens and activists. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome back. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No, it's great to talk with you again. And, um, you know, every day in Trump land seems like a year. So it seems like many, many years since we've spoken. It's only been just a couple of months. But in that time, of right. course, we uh, so much has happened and there's just so much to talk about. And I think that's a good place to start. Uh, and that is a feeling of overwhelm that I'm hearing from a lot of people. I got a number of comments about, you know, people who were overwhelmed, not just by the news, but also kind of by the complexity of everything that's happening. You know, it's it's hard to get your head around everything that's happening with Trump and Ukraine and the impeachment process. And then there's a tragedy, of course, of, of everything that's happening in Syria. And it's just hard to process and to know what to do. How do you advise people generally to deal with overwhelm? Yeah, you know, first of all, I think the overwhelm um, is really, really hard. It's a really hard um, emotion and experience to have. And I get it. Um, I honestly think the overwhelm is more connected to the fact that we are all having a traumatic response to these world events Um, in general, um, experiencing these things. um, We're trying to make sense of it. They don't make sense. And we are left feeling helpless and hopeless and terrified. And honestly, that's the bare bones definition of what it means to be traumatized. So I think that's partially why the overwhelm is so confusing and, and frustrating is because you're actually having a traumatic reaction. Um, I, I would say to folks and activists that having, um, dealing with the overwhelm is really about having good self-care as we go through this process, um, making sure that you're able to put yourself first um, so that you can stay in the game. There's that old saying about putting the oxygen mask on yourself first. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. a lot about that as a trauma therapist. Like if you don't take care of yourself, you won't be there to take care of other people. So it's really, really important that folks step up and put themselves first. I think I, ta- I think I talked about this last time, but I'm a big proponent of managing your exposure and using um, good discernment skills on healthy avoidance. We'll touch on that again, actually, since you've brought it up again. I mean, how do you titrate? What's the right dosage? 
So you really have to pay attention to your body and your emotions. And I, I will just use the example of either listening to something on the radio or watching a television show. You have to be in tune with your body's reaction to it. And if you could start to feel the anxiety rise or start to feel discomfort mm -hmm. in your stomach or start to have a headache, you have to turn it off and or walk away from it. It's really dangerous from a trauma perspective to move through something that's traumatizing um, and not stop when you sense and feel the danger. Because what you're doing is just re-traumatizing yourself, causing more traumatic reactions neurologically. So it's really important to be in tune with your body and stop and walk away and move away from that thing that is traumatizing you in the moment. That's what it means to have kind of a healthy avoidance. A lot of people tell me like, I can't watch the news anymore. I don't watch the news anymore. And I get that and I think that's important. Now do we have to balance that a little bit because you still need to stay informed. Yeah. But I think really paying attention to how your body is feeling and choosing not to move towards something that doesn't make you feel good. I, and you, you've heard me say this before, this also includes people, <laughs> um, pe yeah. people in your life that are causing you to have anxiety around even these political issues. I talk a lot with other activists about family members who are Trump supporters or family members who are apathetic. Um, it is not okay for you as a concerned activist to stand around and try and convince or even be exposed to uh, that. It's dangerous for you psychologically. Um, so I'm a big proponent of you know, being avoidant of those folks. It's just not good for us. Yeah. So limit your exposure to yep. the sorts of things that trigger you. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm nodding as you're saying all these things and I'm hearing my audience in my head agreeing with everything that you're saying. And yet it's so yeah. hard. I mean, the, you know, and I, yeah. I am so guilty of it because the first thing that I do when I log on the morning is I, you know, I go on Twitter and I immediately <laughs> feel my blood pressure rise, you know, and, yes. because there's, there's, so much there that's triggering. And, you know, this brings up something else that I got a lot of emails about, and that was outrage overload. Um, because, mm. of course, you know, you log onto Twitter every single day. There's a new outrage from Trump and the GOP. All you have to do is read his Twitter feed. Um, and, you know, I will just say, and I don't like saying this, but there is something almost affirming about outrage, right? That you're, you're like yeah. validated by it, but not in a healthy way. Can people <laughs> become addicted to outrage? What's it work there? Well, in general, you can be addicted to anything that feels good. So outrage for us does feel good. Um, so yes, in a sense, um, you can be quote unquote addicted to it. I agree with you. I'm not quite comfortable with that phraseology, but in a sense, that really is what's happening. I do believe without any evidence, but neurologically that reward pathway is stimulated. And, and when we connect with the anger that we see about something and we see, you know, a thousand other people on Twitter also outraged and right. we feel comforted by that. So right. yes, there is an element there of, of needing to be outraged with other people. Um, and, and, and again, you know, that old saying about if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Right. Like as activists, we have to have some outrage. Um, I think again, where we have to um, pay attention is to make sure we're doing that in a balanced way that our outrage is also in line with our level of activism, meaning don't just sit around and be outraged. I think about keyboard activists, right. um, you know, who are sitting around, rah, 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 I'm so mad about this, and they're just typing about it on, on some Facebook group or whatever, instead of also 
taking action and doing something about their anger or their outrage and or also managing their self-care and doing other things to comfort themselves in the face of this outrageous behavior. So I think, yes, you can be addicted to outrage, um, but I don't think we should pretend or that we should not be outraged uh, as activists. We must be. But I think it's important to go do something and stay active so that that's not all you feel or that's not the only way you receive comfort during times like this. Um, I, I really believe that being active and getting out and being around other like-minded people and getting out and canvassing or making phone calls or you know doing the things that we do as part of Indivisible, that is the thing that can help us prevent being using outrage as a negative coping skill or as our only coping skill. Absolutely agreed. And, you know, it. I guess if there's something to get addicted to, it would be taking action in that way. Yeah, and, exactly. Right. And, you know, and I've said before that I think that there's something really affirming about a group like Indivisible in that you are able to come together with like-minded people. You are able to take action. Uh, it, it feels therapeutic to be together yeah. in that way. Absolutely. We touched on this a little bit last time, too. But I think even when it when it comes to dealing with our sense of overwhelm and managing our outrage, one of the most important things you can do for yourself is to stay true to who you are through all of this. And the way to do that is to stay around like minded people, be around people that can help you strengthen your values be true to your values and move and choose behaviors that are in line with your values. Ultimately, when you lose who you are, you've lost everything. And that's what we risk in these dark times is that we, you know, there is pressure all around us and confusion all around us that is challenging who we are individually, who we are as a community and who we are as a country. It's there. That's what happens. We turn on the news. We're being challenged who are we? And so staying around like-minded people is so comforting and so good for us, for our soul and for who we are. It's really, really important. So I think, again, it's one of the top coping skills that I would say to people. And, you know, not live in a vacuum. You know, you know it's not okay to just only take in information from other like-minded people. That's not necessarily what I mean. I do mean being around like-minded people who would challenge you and, you know, good depth of information and range of information. But ultimately ensuring that you are around people who are lifting up your values um, and that you can lift up theirs. Yeah. And, and again, as from a soul level. Yeah. And I'm, I, I know as a therapist that uh, you believe very strongly in the power of making, you know, good relationships and having those be sort yeah. of a, a bedrock place in your life. And this is something that is kind of related to everything that we're, we're talking about here. But I've been reading and hearing about something called compassion fatigue, and mm. this is usually something you hear about with people who are, you know, caretakers for loved ones who are sick. But I'm hearing about it in reference to activists, too. Sure, sure. Can you talk about what compassion fatigue is and, and, sure. and how it's different from standard burnout? Yeah. So I think, again, like you said, it's really common in our field and helping professions to have to manage our compassion fatigue. In general, it's exhaustion from caring too much. Um, burnout is just burning, you know, burning your flame all the way down. But compassion fatigue has a lot to do with expending your personal resources for the care of other people. And, um, and in general, it's not healthy. Once we've hit that point of, of caring too much, so much so that we start to have a negative impact to us, 
um, obviously that can be harmful to us. The other little reason you're hearing about this is because in general, progressive activists tend to be highly empathetic people. That's right. I, I have Absolutely no scientific evidence to that fact, but I think you and I would agree. Anecdotally, with that. yeah, I mean, we know that to be true. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, from that perspective, um, you're we are suffering emotionally because we are givers and giving and giving and giving. Um, in general, some signs just off the top of my head would it looks a lot like general anxiety or depression. You might have emotions related to fearfulness and hopelessness, um, some generalized negative thoughts. Um, Another thing that happens with compassion fatigue is the loss of feeling joy uh, when doing the things you used to enjoy doing. This Uh, sounds a lot like depression. It does. It does. The other little piece of it is the physical fatigue, literal tiredness. Your body is tired. So if we, I, I sometimes think about it being the general um, depression symptoms along with a lot of the physical body symptoms. Mm. Um, there can be some irritability as well. Um, and a desire to isolate, which is a lot of that depression stuff. I would also say, as I, as I speak about this, you know, I think on any given Thursday, I might be suffering from that, you know, but when you're trying to evaluate, is this an issue for me? We're looking for symptoms that are lasting two and three weeks at a time, okay. not just I'm having a really bad day and don't want to don't want to get out of bed or you know had a really uh, hard time yesterday. But but if these symptoms are sticking around for a long time, it's probably a good idea to get some help either by seeing a therapist or just taking some time off for yourself. I I tend to tell my clients, can you double down on your coping skills for a week or two Mm. and see if you don't improve, you know, spend a little extra time on self-care, a little extra time doing mindfulness and breathing and grounding skills, a little extra time, you know, with people who will uplift your values, those kinds of things and see if you don't can't get a lift from, um, from some of the symptoms for a while. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really important for us to monitor ourselves right now because there's just so much that is new, I think, for a lot of people. A lot of people are new to activism generally, right? And so a yeah. lot of the things that are coming up right now might be kind of unfamiliar and maybe frightening. Absolutely. Again, I think that has a lot to do with that overwhelm, too. So you, you combine... Um, people that are new to activism or new to these issues or or having new awarenesses to these issues, completely overwhelmed, confused by the the fact that these terrible things are happening to us, to our neighbors, to our communities. We're completely racked with fear and a sense of helplessness over this stuff, right? And then we have this heightened, I need to help I care about other people. Yeah, it's it's uh, definitely a, an issue for us. Well, kind of shifting gears in a big way, I want to get into some listener questions. Um, and the first one is about anger. Um, uh, Tan Lee has a question about anger, and it's actually a pretty funny question in its, in, in its entirety. So I'm just going to read it verbatim. He says, I okay. think I am becoming a Sith Lord. I am comfortably <laughs> relishing my hatred and anger and letting it empower me and focus my resolve rather than weaken me. I will use it to amp up my involvement in volunteerism to get out the vote. I will cut out anyone in my life who is too stupid to see what is at stake now. So here's my question. Can justified hate actually be beneficial? 
Is it okay to say hell yes? <laughs> sure. You just did. I, hope so. yeah. I just did. Okay. So yes, as a trauma therapist, I'm a big fan of, of the power of healthy anger. And that listener described it almost perfectly. So a lot of people are afraid of negative emotions and there's some value in that negative emotions to the extreme, to the point they're harming our, us or other people. Yes, that's a problem. But as a, as a trauma therapist, I really believe that survivors need to experience trauma. I mean, they don't need to experience trauma. They need to experience anger um, as a way to uh, understand that they've been hurt and harmed and betrayed. Sometimes coming through a trauma, you tend to numb out um, or are manipulated into kind of staying in that trauma state. Mm. So anger is really beneficial. It's a sign that you've moved through it psychologically. And, and the way that listener described is exactly what I ask people to do is use that anger to motivate you to act. Oftentimes, um, survivors will use this anger to, uh, to be, get, do something for their own best interest. Um, and so, yeah, I, I absolutely am a huge fan of it. And I think that's what's motivating quite a few of us. And yeah. I'm a fan. Well, the, I'm, the flip side of that, and I certainly feel that, is that there's this helpless component to anger. Yeah. You know, sure. seeing seeing every day you see Trump and the GOP just get away with atrocities that just make you furious and you sit with that anger and it feels terrible. It, re- it reminds me of, you know, the Buddhist saying anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So. You know, what's the healthy way to process anger? I mean, is is it simply taking action? Are there other things we should be doing? I think that's the one of the best ways you can uh, process anger is to do something. If you sit in your anger, it's going to build. And so by using that anger to take action, I think you're going to get a lot of relief and you're going to gain some new insights. Um, most people who have empathy are going to th- then land in behaviors that either... Um, are better for themselves or other people as a result of that. We don't want to experience bad things in general. We want things to be good. So when we take our anger and move it into action, it typically, if we're, if we're moving in the right direction to have empathy, it will land us uh, someplace good. And so, yeah, I think it's kind of important to use that to take action. I will also add, I, I think this is kind of related to your question, um, is we can sit around and watch what happens with this administration and feel helpless um, and become angry. But I think a big part of shifting that anger is to uh, is being a part of a larger uh, group of people or organization like Indivisible. Because when we pay attention to what we have done um, as a group, um, we can decrease our sense of helplessness yeah. um, and decrease that anger. I personally may not have created change. But me and my group of fellow activists, um, including the nation of Indivisible, we have created change. And, and so I think that's something to, re- to be able to focus on um, when we get stuck in that helplessness that creates that anger is staying focused on that bigger picture. I love that. And I want to actually take that and see if we can move it into another area where people feel helplessness. Um, And this comes from a question by Mark Hertz. He said, I'd like to get your perspective on the idea of, quote unquote, pre-traumatic stress disorder as it relates to things like climate change and the possibility of an autocracy. Do you see trauma in people about things that haven't happened yet, but very possibly will? 
So when you say pre-traumatic stress, I think hypervigilance. Mm. Um, so hypervigilance being the fear that something will happen based on the fact that something bad has happened in the past. And um, that pre-traumatic stress, even that phrase going along with hypervigilance means that we are living in a state of fear that that bad thing is coming. So that's bad for us, like living in a state of fear um, neurologically and psychologically is not healthy for us. Um, It hurts the body. What I want people to focus on, and I think healthy activism is more vigilance. Vigilance is knowing that something bad could happen and living a life being prepared for that something bad, but not living in the fear of it, just being prepared for it. That is such a, a it's, it's an important distinction, but I think it's also a very difficult balance to strike, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and again, especially if you think about climate change, because frankly, we're living that right now. Like there are things that are happening on this planet that are causing harm to us. Um, and so sometimes when I teach this to trauma survivors, they are not actively in danger, right? Cause that's one of the first things we work on is getting safe. But for, if we, if we were to parlay this to climate change, there are things that are happening that are absolutely harmful to this planet right now. So it is kind of a fine line. Um, but we, what I for sure know is that we can't stay in the fear of the future. We have to live right now. And and again, oh gosh, I hate to repeat this theme, but what are we going to do about right. it? Right. You know, so I also use the metaphor with my clients of living a life, walking through a forest. You are walking through a forest. You know, you're in a forest. And what that means is there are beautiful plants and cute little bunnies, but there are also dangerous wolves and possibly bears out there, right? So we're not going to be afraid of the bears and the wolves if we don't see them. But we certainly have everything in our tool belt we need to protect ourselves from the bears and the wolves. So as activists, if we were kind of using that metaphor, it's okay, you know, the ice is melting and the core is heating. Um, What are we going to do now? living in this moment and enjoy what we have around us, but also being mindful of how we're going to be prepared um, to either prevent and or live in a world that is different uh, from a climate perspective. Again, it's about staying present, being here right now, making choices that are keeping us safe on a day-to-day basis and focused on keeping ourselves safe in the future. You know, what can I do? It's really, it's managing that fear state um, and keeping that in check by staying present and grounded that I think is the solution to uh, the the pre-traumatic stress thought or, or feelings. Does that yeah, make sense? It, it absolutely does make sense. And, and then just one last question, uh, and this actually also has to do with the issue of fear, but it's coming from the perspective of somebody else. Uh, Susan Vossler would like to know how our feelings of angst and despair impact our kids who look to us Mm. for assurance. And I think what she's asking is, how can we reassure our children when we ourselves are feeling scared and uncertain? Well, I'm a big fan of honesty. And I think it's important to be honest with our children age appropriately. And what that means to me is to validate um, our uncertainty and our fear. Um, If our children, if we're having that discussion with our children, I think if we act fearful and then our kids ask us about that and then we say, oh, well, oh, no, I'm not afraid. Everything is fine. Kids know. 
kids know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and kids know because we all have a limbic system and all that stuff, mm. like they know. And so what we're teaching them by not being honest about how we're feeling, including our uncertainty and fear is we're teaching them to invalidate feelings and that, um, you know, to pretend everything is okay when it's not. So I, I first and foremost think it's important for adults to validate our emotions and kids emotions, um, when we're going through this. And, and I think what we can do then is to demonstrate and talk with kids about how you can cope with fear and cope with the unknown. What are we going to do about it? And then you know what just came to my mind. Isn't that a great way to teach activism? Oh. So you're so you're afraid about, you know, uh, climate change. Well, what are you going to do about it? Right. So you're afraid for your neighbors in your community. What are you going to do about it? How many young activists have we seen um, lead movements the as Parkland a result. The Kids, Greta Thunberg, and, and, and many, many others. Yeah, Absolutely. And to me, that's a great example of embracing their own sense of uncertainty and fear in a very powerful way, in a way that is honest and validating and, and, and moving. So I think the honesty and gosh, back to that activism again, what are you going to do about it? Right. And how are you going to cope in a healthy way? Well, I'm going to go gather up a million of my closest friends and march in the streets. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I think validating and, and kind of, um, you know, being honest about our emotions is a way to help the kids. Completely agreed. Jennifer, thank you as always. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Jennifer Young is a therapist and leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay. And that is it for this week. Hope you and yours are having a wonderful holiday and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.